you will turn please to Hebrews chapter 7. The, the theme for summer camp this week was uh, Hebrews 11. We were working through the chapter on faith. So I have been uh, just marinating in Hebrews. It's, it's been glorious. So Hebrews chapter 7, if you'll turn with me please. Beginning at verse 1, if you'll join me in standing. Hebrews chapter one, beginning at, or chapter seven, beginning at verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. Remains a priest continually. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace and peace. And I pray, God, that as we consider what it is that Jesus is the King of Righteousness, that we would see your glory and that we would understand all that you have done and all that you are. We pray, God, that our lives would be transformed into the likeness of the risen Christ. And that his righteousness might be displayed in us throughout every day that you grant us life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we have here this, this interesting statement. That this king of righteousness, who also was the king of Salem. So, king of Salem is a title. And that means king of peace. But Melchizedek is his name, which means King of Righteousness. And it winks at us in this really amazing way, this simple and profound truth, that we have to first submit to Christ to be our King of Righteousness before we can ever partake of the peace that he offers to all who love God. The culture wants us to pretend that you can love God and be loved by God while arrogantly declaring your sin. While pride might be the rallying cry of the damned, it has nothing to do with the people of God. We must embrace Christ as the King of Righteousness. We must surrender our sin, our rebellion, our very hatred of the Holy God, and cling to Him in love. Remember that at its core, sin is hatred towards God. And that is something that God will simply never overlook. So I want to talk with you about what it means that Melchizedek, who represents Christ, and I believe is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, is the King of Righteousness. And I want to think with you about the implications of this king of righteousness and how we come to him as king of righteousness before we ever find anything else. And so let's understand why this matters. And the first thing we need to hear is that God never delights in evil. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, part of the love verse, speaking about love, personifying God, it says, It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. The, the truth is, is that those who do evil are the enemies of God. Okay, And I know that's really strong language, and I know that's language that the culture hates, and I know that's language that many Christians take offense at, but turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5, and we are going to do quite a bit of scripture hopping today, so nimble up your fingers. Psalm chapter 5, beginning at verse 4.
The psalmist declares, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. I'm going to say that again. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not dwell in your, shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity, and you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Just think for a moment about the way that the culture runs after every form of depravity and evil and wickedness and shameful behavior and holds it up and says, oh, take pride in this. Fortunately, June is almost over. However, the behaviors aren't going to change at the end of June. And the constant pressure for us to acquiesce and to give in and to just let them be exalted in is not going to change. We need to recognize the simple truth that God is opposed to that. And God is opposed to every single person who delights in that. And if the church wants to delight in that, then the church finds itself opposing God. And worse, finds God opposing the church. This is one of the reasons why the church in America has become so weak and powerless. Because the church in America has long compromised the ground of truth and the ground of righteousness for the ground of public opinion. And we lost in the exchange. It is becoming evident stronger and stronger and stronger as we look at the culture around us that what is needed is a healthy dose of truth being spoken without fear and being spoken without compromise. And I promise you that nobody in the world is going to do that. It's only the church. It's our responsibility. It's our job. And we have to recognize that if we're going to say that we love the people that we want to reach, that we have to be honest with them about the danger that they are in. Because God hates their wickedness and says plainly and simply, nobody who does those things, nobody who loves wickedness, nobody who is arrogant, nobody who is prideful, nobody who is boastful, nobody who's a liar, nobody who's a murderer, nobody who's sexually immoral, these people are not going to stand in my presence, period. They will have no access to the Father. Jesus said it very bluntly in John chapter 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. He is the only source of access to the Father. And there is no other hope that can be offered to anybody. And that message uniquely belongs to the church. It's not a message that the world understands. It's not a message that the world speaks. It's not a message that the world embraces. It's not a message that the world even tolerates. It is our message, and it is the truth of God. And we are the ones who have been given the responsibility of sharing it because God is their enemy. He is opposed to them in every way. They have established themselves as enemies of God. And they have also established themselves as enemies of Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 17. Paul writes this. Brethren, 
Join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and tell you now weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, Paul doesn't go into the exhaustive list in this particular passage, but he's referencing things he has said here and elsewhere. Because the bottom line is this. When we set ourselves to oppose God and set ourselves to oppose the truth of His Word and set ourselves to oppose the righteousness that God requires, we make ourselves an enemy of God. We make ourselves an enemy of Christ. We make ourselves an enemy of the cross of Christ, which is doubly dangerous because the only hope of salvation comes through the cross of Christ. It comes through the shed blood of Jesus. And if you are an enemy of the message of the cross, then you are an enemy of the very thing that you need. But in the end, this is the great need of mankind. Because we are all, in ourselves, in that position. Apart from the grace of God that saved us, every single one of us is an enemy of God and an enemy of the cross. Every single one of us seeks only our own destruction. And we seek it because it seems to offer to us something that we think is going to be good, and for the short term, it might be. For, for that briefest moment, it might be pleasurable, it might be enjoyable, it might even have some sort of payment that you think is going to be good. But it never lasts, and it never delivers what it promises. And for us as Christians, we need to recognize that we would continue in that path unless God had changed us, because every single person who has ever been has this same initial position towards God. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and starting at verse 10, Paul writes this. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there are those who believe, if I just live a good life and do a bunch of good works, if I do more good than evil, then I'll be okay in the day of judgment. I'll stand before God, he'll weigh out my life, he'll determine that I have done more good than evil, and I will be welcomed into his house because I am a righteous man. Unfortunately, what the scripture tells us is that every single one of us is, first of all, condemned by our own nature. And secondly, we are condemned by the fact that we have never done anything righteous. And we're also condemned by the fact that the law is not capable of making anybody righteous and never has been. The law of God is designed to show us our guilt and to drive us to the cross of Christ. The law of God is designed to show us the many, 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 many ways that we fail Always. And to teach us that we need Him. That's what the law does. 
It crushes us under the righteousness of God, and it crushes us under His holiness. And it teaches us that we are utterly broken and utterly without hope unless God does something magnificent. But the truth is, is that God also shows us through His law that He is calling us to Himself, and through His Spirit calling us to life, we recognize that if we cry out for mercy, He will save us. It's His strength, it's His glory, it's His power, it's His purpose. But this is a universal expression across the board for every single person, regardless of their age, regardless of when they have lived upon the earth or what they might have done. It doesn't matter whether they're old or young, whether they are religious or pagan. It doesn't matter whether the things that they think they've done, they've actually engaged in any way. Until this need is satisfied, there is no path to peace with God. Look at Psalm 15. By way of example in the Old Testament, Psalm 15 addresses a very, very simple question. Who can ascend into the presence of God? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? And who may dwell on your holy hill? Here's the answer. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart and who does not backbite with his tongue nor do evil to his neighbor nor does he take up reproach against a friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And that all sounds very hopeful until we deal with ourselves with some honesty and say, I haven't done any of those things. At no point in my life could I say that I have ever been 100% righteous in regards to any one of those things. Just one. Pick one. At no point in my life could I ever contend that I have been flawless in any of them. Now, most of us would look at that and we would say, well, you're only human. And that, beloved, is the point. I am only human. I'm not God. I'm not divine. I'm not perfect. And the standard for God's righteousness is perfection. The standard for God's righteousness is his own righteousness. The bar is not being better than Adam. Neither this one nor the one that came first. The bar is being as good as Jesus So if you want to enter into a negotiation with God and say, okay, God, I want you to judge me according to my righteousness. Understand that the standard by which God will judge you, and as an aside, I have to tell you, that's an option. The whole world's going to step up and say, okay, God, judge me by my righteousness. And God's going to judge them not by their standards in comparison to any other human being, but by their standards in obedience and comparison to the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. He is the standard. So, for us as Christians, we need to recognize and communicate faithfully the reality that is pressing upon all of mankind, that they are in a terrible bind. We cannot be silent about the truth of that message. And all of the pressure and all of the efforts in the church in America today to make the gospel this thing that just kind of comes alongside you and lifts you up and makes you a little happier than you were and, and there's no real problems in your life and, and it's okay. We just, you just have bad self-esteem and you just need to be a better person and it'll all be okay. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that God, first and foremost, 
delivers good news to the condemned. To those who are guilty of violating his law, he offers hope. And the gospel is very simply stated this. Jesus Christ came as a man, lived a perfect life, and died a substitute for our sin. And all who cry out to him for mercy will find it. Amen. That's the heart. That's the soul of it. There's details that need to be addressed and truths that need to be woven throughout it. But the end of the matter comes down to this. You need something you can't provide. And only God can. But as long as you continue thinking that you're fine and need nothing, you will indeed find nothing. See, what we have to have is the absolute righteousness of somebody besides ourselves. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Jesus is speaking at the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is Jesus saying that if you could just do it a little better than those guys, that you'll be okay? Is that the point? What were the scribes and the Pharisees known for? What were they famous for? Pardon? Legalism, right? Their external righteousness. They added to the law of God tremendously, and they did all the things that they said they should do. They missed God's law. They missed the heart and soul of what God said to do, but they kept up their own. So Jesus isn't saying to do a little better than they do. What Jesus is talking about is that the the standard of your righteousness, the measure by which you measure it, the, the actual qualitative reality of your righteousness has to be better than the qualitative reality of the righteousness that the Pharisees prescribed. The Pharisees based their righteousness on works, and Jesus says works aren't going to cut it. Your righteousness has to be something more. And then he said this thing at the beginning of this passage, which I want to draw your attention to. He said, nothing is going to change in this until all of the law is fulfilled. Now that word fulfilled means completed or or made whole. It's the idea that Jesus came to do that very thing. He came to completely obey the law of God. When man fell, we fell in our first father Adam. Adam violated the law of God. And when Adam violated the law of God, he passed on to his his, um, descent that tendency to hate God. He passed on to them spiritual death. He passed on to them not only the, the, the nature of evil, but he passed on all of the works. And we continue to do evil because of our first father, Adam. Well, Jesus was establishing himself as a new Adam. Jesus was establishing himself as a second Adam, according to Paul in Romans chapter 5. And by doing this work, Jesus is then giving to those who are found in him 
a new life, a new relationship to the law, and a new complete way of doing and thinking and being. So Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to obey every single thing that God ever told us to do. I came to fulfill the law of Moses, to obey it completely. He never did anything that he wasn't supposed to do. And more impressively, he did everything he was supposed to do. He completely obeyed the law. He completely fulfilled it. He never violated it in the least way. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us this plainly. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Now this is possible for Christ only because He is inherently the embodiment of the law. Nobody but Jesus could have done what He did. Jesus is the Logos of God. He is the Word of God. And God spoke the law into existence. He gave the law. He is the Word. So he is the giver of the law, he is the word which was spoken, and he is also the third person, or the second person, excuse me, of the Trinity, and he is the one whose nature the law reflects. Think about this with me. Why did God give us the Ten Commandments? We'll just focus on those ten. We should be able to manage ten things, right? Oh, forget it. We'll just manage one. The first commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first commandment it was, as it was given to Moses is, I am God, you will worship nobody but me. The specific wording is, you will put no other gods in front of my face. So, why in the world would God give us that command? Is it because he's arrogant and he's a little bit worried that if we start looking at other things, we're going to not love him and then he's going to be sad? Why did he give us that command? Because it reflects the truth that there are no other gods. Every single command of God is a direct reference to his character and his nature and reflects the truth that he is who he says he is. You can take apart the Ten Commandments, you can take apart the whole law of Moses, and you can look at every single instance in every single circumstance, and with just a little bit of thought, you can figure out how the things that God says we are to do and not to do tell us something about his nature tell us something about his character. They tell us something about who he is. The Ten Commandments are not given abstractly. They are given as a reflection of the nature and the character of God. And every single one of them is important or he wouldn't have given it. So if Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, do the laws also reflect his character? Sure they do. They reflect who he is. Now, here's what's interesting about that. What drives our behavior? What we love, who we love, who we are. Is it safe to extend that just a little bit and say that that's also what reflects and drives God's behavior? Does God do anything that he doesn't love? No. Can anybody force God to do anything he doesn't love? No. Can anybody force God to do anything he doesn't want to do? No. So Jesus came to earth and he actually wanted to obey the law. I mean, really wanted to. We all want to obey the law, but we don't really want to. We want to obey the law when we might get caught or we might get punished or somebody might find out about it and embarrass us. We want to obey the law in our better moments, but we don't really want to do it when it's terribly inconvenient. 
And we certainly don't want to do it when it conflicts with the thing that we want right now. Jesus never had that problem. Jesus really wanted to obey the law. Because the law reflected the things that Jesus actually loved. Because the law reflected the Father. He was God made flesh. And as God made flesh, He loved the Father like nobody else ever could. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He will show Him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that they should all honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this absolute righteousness of Jesus, which is promised to us, which is given to us in his death, is the righteousness of God himself. And he was able to live this out because his desire, his love for the Father, motivated everything that he did. He loved the Father, he watched what the Father was doing, and he did whatever he saw the Father do. He didn't have a divided set of loyalties. He didn't have a desire that was outside of God. He didn't have a desire that was outside of things that God himself approved of and desired and gave him as as things to do. This is a perfect righteousness. This is an absolute righteousness. This is the standard against which all of our works will be measured, or it is the righteousness that will be given to us as people found in Christ. Because that's really what's offered. We are promised an alien righteousness. Our King gives us His righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ, our King, has made a way for us to have that alien righteousness that comes from His own blood. And by alien, I don't mean little green men in flying saucers. By alien, I mean foreign to us. We are given a divine righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. So, how is it that Jesus makes us the righteousness of God? Well, He was the righteousness of God. And He gives it to us in exchange for our sin. He takes our sin and is punished for it. He is our righteousness. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Starting at verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Therefore... 
The days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children from the land of Israel, from the brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. The Lord our righteousness, the King of righteousness. This is our Christ. And he has given to us his righteousness. We are given a righteousness that we lay hold of and we take and it becomes our righteousness. But at no point is it drawn from us. You are not the source of it. You are not the one who makes it your righteousness. It is God's work to do that. It is God's work to impart to you His own righteousness and to make it belong to you. Look at Romans chapter 3 again. This time we'll start where we left off at verse 21. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. I'm going to say that again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. That's an atonement. That's a substitution. He set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So righteousness being given to us, God's righteousness, God's alien righteousness being given to us, is evidence that we have been justified. It's evidence that God looks at us and does not count our sins against us and will not judge us or condemn us for even that which we still do in rebellion against Him. Because what he sees and what he rewards and what he honors is the righteousness that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. His perfection has been given to us and our sin was taken by Christ and punished in Jesus. So when Christ was on the cross and the darkness came and Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was being poured out on Christ for the sin of his people. He was enduring our portion of hell, the punishment, the wrath, the judgment of God that we deserved. Ours, and ours alone, for he had nothing in him that deserved it. But conversely, the full and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, our King, was being counted to us. It's as if all of our sins were being taken away and being replaced by the righteous actions of Jesus, who came to fulfill the law. And now His obedience to the law is credited to us as if we actually had done it. So God looks at us and He sees the full and perfect righteousness of His Son, our King, standing in our place. And His righteousness shields us and His righteousness covers us. 
And His righteousness becomes to us that which grants us access into the presence of God. And it gives to us a full squadron, a host of blessings and benefits that are ours because of the righteousness of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, just very quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read the the first uh, little bit of Ephesians 1. We'll start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So there's our foundational statement. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So because of Christ, because we are found in Him, because we are given His righteousness, there is this host of blessings which are being put onto us. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So the very first blessing that we see is that God chose us. I'm not going to beat that horse. I do that all the time. Today I'm going to beat a different one. You are holy and you are without blame because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ being given to you. Because you have been blessed with this spiritual blessing of being His child, you are holy and you are without blame before Him. You were predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ according to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So right there we see we've been given glory, we've been given His grace. He has made us accepted. God never turns us away. He's given us redemption. He's given us forgiveness. Verse 8, "...by which which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself." that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, Paul makes it really hard for me not to beat the sovereignty horse here. That we who first trusted in glory should be, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having been sealed, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is our guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You are accepted. You are holy and blameless. You are adopted. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. You have been made wise. You are objects of grace. You are beloved. Just, Just... I would commend this passage to you for your soaking this afternoon. I would commend you just to take this passage of Scripture and read it and soak in it and dwell in it and ask God to show you all of the magnificent glory that is found in this truth that all of these things have been given to you because Christ Jesus imparts His righteousness to you. He is your King. It begins because you are in Christ. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that makes us able to stand in this day is ours because we are found in Christ. He is the King of our righteousness. We have what we have because He gives it to us. It belongs to Him. 
But because He is a good and gracious King, He shares it with us. This is truly a royal righteousness. And as a royal righteousness, this is something that we need to recognize is inherent to who He is. So righteousness, according to Scripture, basically is the, the center of His throne. Righteousness, verse, uh, Psalm 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, and mercy and truth go before your face. So righteousness is His throne. It is the foundation of His throne. It's the foundation of His rule. And His mercy to us is also righteous. And this is something that you need to hang on to. Because a lot of times people tend to think that God forgives us by simply choosing to look away and ignore sin. That would make His mercy unrighteous. If God simply looked away and said, well, you know, I think Adam's a pretty cool guy and I'm just I'm not going to count his sin against him. He's my guy. If that's what God did then every other person on the face of the earth would be able to say to God, you're not, you're not being just. Why does his sin not get punished and ours does? But what Jesus did on the cross was to actually pay for our sin. He finally, completely, absolutely paid for our sin. This is why it is so important for us to understand that there will be no one in hell for whom Christ died. His sin is paid for. Any person found in Christ, their sin has actually, completely, finally, significantly, truly been paid for. There's nothing there to hold them accountable for. There is no reason for them to fear the wrath of God. This is what is ours as children of the King. He gives to us His righteousness. He gives to us a King who is established on righteousness. And He gives to us mercy because of that. And His scepter, which is the sign and the symbol of His reign, is also a scepter of righteousness. Psalm 45, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Righteousness is the belt of His loins. Isaiah eleven five says, Righteousness shall be the belt of His loins, and faithfulness the belt of His waist. When the Bible speaks about loins, it's talking about the strength of your back. It's like a weightlifter putting on the weightlifting belt to strengthen him up when he's lifting really heavy weights. And what the Scripture tells us is that God faithfully fulfills everything that He said He was going to do because righteousness is His strength. You see, if you compromise on your righteousness you make yourself vulnerable. Right? You do something you know you're not supposed to do, you get a little sneaky, you get a little sly, and then all your life you have to try and cover that up. You have to be afraid that somebody's going to find out about it. It leaves a hole in you. It leaves some place that you're vulnerable, some place that you're weak. God doesn't have any of those. Christ doesn't have any of those because He's been completely righteous for all of eternity. He has never done anything wrong. He has never done anything contrary to his own nature. And therefore, that strength is based in righteousness. And then, he also arms himself with his righteousness. Righteousness becomes his breastplate. Look at Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, if you're on my uh, devotional list, you'll see this passage come up later on. This, This really struck me. Isaiah 59, starting at verse 15. So truth falls. Fails, I'm sorry. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, 
and he wondered that there was no intercessor. And therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garment of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. You see, no one ever could or ever would really set things right. And those who wanted righteousness were being destroyed by evil. There was no one to intercede. And so God, seeing this, did everything that was in his power to do to set it right. Now, when you make a statement like that, it's a fairly large statement because if God is God, is there anything that is not in his power to do? See, we need to understand this. We need to recognize that what God promises us is that he, as our king, takes up our fights. He is the breastplate of righteousness that he then offers to us. We're going to look at Ephesians 6 in a minute. And those of you who recognize the language understand that Paul borrowed it. But before God gave it to us, the breastplate of righteousness belonged to him. It's his armor. It's his strength. It's his defense. It's his power. Him, the God who is, the King who established us as his people, he amazingly, completely, fully did everything that was necessary to save us and then incomprehensibly he gives to us the very things that he used to save us. He gives to us his own righteousness. He imparts it to us and says, here, put this on. It'll keep you safe. Put this on. It'll protect you in the midst of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and see if the language doesn't resonate with you. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. I have to confess to you something before we go any further. I've always read this thinking just, you know, the armor of God's people. But that's not what it says. It says the armor of God. It's His armor. It's his stuff. It's like we go into the closet and we say, Lord, Dad, Papa, I'm a little naked here. You got something I can wear? Did we hear a story like that from Jesus? Something about a prodigal son? Go get my best robe and put it on him? That's exactly what we see here. We see God imparting to his people his own armor, his armor own righteousness, his own defense. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How amazing is it that our God has imparted to us the very thing that He Himself used 
to win our victory and to defeat our foes. He gives to us the breastplate of righteousness. He gives to us the helmet of his own salvation. That which he has done to do for us. He gives to us. It boggles the mind. It absolutely boggles the mind. His royal crown has been established in this glory. Look at Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28, starting at verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back at the battle of the Deate. It gives something even a little more holy. It gives us the awareness that all of these things, the throne, the scepter, the breastplate, the crown, the mercy, all of these things are embodied in the person of Christ. That He is our shield and strength. That He is our defender. That He is our strong tower. That He is our very righteousness. Our alien righteousness is the person of Christ. It's not something that God just pulled out of His pocket and said, here, hold on to this. It'll keep you. It's the person of Jesus. It's the person of God Himself drawing us into fellowship with Him and making us His own in ways we can never fully comprehend. He takes up our fight. He takes up the banner of His people's cause. And He grants to us, who are His own peculiar people, the birthright that we could never forgive. I mean, that we could never deserve, excuse me, which is the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I hear that verse used a lot as an evangelistic verse encouraging people to fly to the cross and ask for mercy, but that's not its context. You can apply it that way, but that's not what's in in view when John wrote that. What's in view when John wrote that is that God will forgive our sins as his people. That even his children, when we fail, and you will, still find in him mercy and hope and forgiveness. He's not going to turn you away because you get it wrong sometimes. He's not going to turn you away because you get it wrong most of the time. He's not going to turn you away. And He's not going to turn you away because He's faithful. Not because you're faithful. He's not going to turn you away because He won't do it. Not because you don't deserve it. He's not going to turn you away because everything that we are is bound up in the person of Christ being everything that he said he was. And he is our king of righteousness. And as our king of righteousness, the whole scope, the entire spectrum of everything that he gives comes out of his own nature and his own person. Christ is the whole shot. He's everything. That's why it's so important that we we understand that the scripture says there's nothing else. Because Jesus is all of it. 
There's no hope apart from him. And anybody who thinks that they can somehow find peace with God in a way that excludes Christ is deceiving themselves. In the end, we are forgiven because of our birthright. We also are made citizens of his kingdom. If he's our king, it stands the reason that we are his subjects. Amen? That, that's the way it works. You, you have a king. You are swearing your fealty to him. You are his subject. You are his. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We already read Ephesians 1.11-14, where it talks about us being given an inheritance as of the firstborn. That we've been given an inheritance from God. And Romans chapter 8 puts that into the context of saying that the inheritance that we enjoy from God our Father is the inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's His inheritance. And His inheritance is shared with us because we are found in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 15, please. Romans chapter 8. In verse 15, Paul writes this. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Not secondary heirs, not minor heirs, not, not and mentioned in the will. You are heirs with Christ. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that is his as the firstborn over all creation, everything that is his as the very apple of God's eye, everything that is his as the son of righteousness, the king of righteousness, the glory of God made flesh, everything that belongs to Christ has been given to us because we are found in Christ. And beloved, that is glory. Why would we want to settle for the cheap, pale, filthy garbage of the earth when we have been given such glory? Why would we even care? Let the earth pass away. Let all that are in it hate us forever and ever. Just so long as I have Jesus. You say, well, that doesn't sound very evangelistic. Well, by itself it's not. But we have to understand that the world out there is still filled with members of our family who don't yet know who they are. And we go out into the world carrying the gospel of Christ, looking for our family. Because we've been given this inheritance, and the wonder of the way that God gives his inheritance is when he divides a thing, it doesn't get smaller. Heaven's math is a strange thing. You can continue to divide the inheritance of Christ more and more and more, and it never diminishes. In fact, it increases. You see, we have nothing to fear by sharing Christ with everyone that we meet. We have only hope. We have only the certain reality that there are out there among those people, those who are our family, those who still belong to Christ, though they don't know it yet. 
And we have the promise that if we carry the message faithfully, that God will use that to draw them to Himself. Our hearts burn to see our brothers and sisters swept into the kingdom. Our hearts long to see them saved, to see them won, and to see them with us at home in the eternal presence of God, which is another part of our birthright. Look at John 14. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the last night of his life, and he tells them this. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. If you had known me, you also would have known the Father also. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. You see, our eternal home in heaven is a home in the presence of God. It is a home where we are given access to the King and access to the God who made all things. And more than just a home somewhere in heaven, we actually are being made into the spiritual dwelling wherein God himself dwells. Look at me at Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Peter writes this. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense." They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. We are being built into the testimonial statement of God's glory. We are being built into the likeness of His Son. We are being built into the habitation of His glory. And in that, we are granted unlimited access to the Father Himself. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. We find these words. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, 
If we start off with the position that all of mankind apart from Christ is separated from God by their sin, what better place to end than as our inheritance in the Son, we are given unlimited, unfiltered access to the Father. Beloved, that's the target, that's the aim, that's the goal, that's the promise. God will give you Himself. And nothing else matters if you have Him. Nothing. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, Lord, that in this day you would teach us how to walk in the truth that you've shown us. God, let us live out everything that we do so that your glory is displayed. Let us not fear what men may do. Let us not fear what men may say. Let us not fear what might happen today or tomorrow, but let us rejoice in the fact that we are being built into this spiritual house and that we, as your people, God, we as your people, are given this great and awesome privilege of knowing you and being made your children. God, you have done all this and so much more. And I pray that we would consider what it is to call you the king of our righteousness and to receive from you that which grants us access to you. Help us ponder and think and let Christ be honored in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name.